We're going to continue on a journey that Pastor Jeff started us on. It's journey to the cross. And this is one of, for me, the most contemplative, the most powerful seasons of the year because everything goes to everything that matters during this season. We make our way to the cross, we make our way to the empty tomb, and we come out on the other side. And tonight, I, I want to talk about the day that in, in reality begins Passion Week, and it literally is the flint striking that erupts into a flame that becomes the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So if you have your Bible and you want to turn with me and read I want us to honor the Word of God here. I'm going to read two passages for you, one long and one short. Matthew chapter 21 first, and then we'll jump over to Luke chapter 19. This is verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a colt tied there and her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell them the Lord needs them, and they'll send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowds spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? And the crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered into the temple area, and he drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a den of robbers. The blind of the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise? And then over in chapter 19 of Luke, just one, two verses there. This is at the end of Luke's account. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Would you stand and let's pray together and invite the word to be spoken by the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, I don't have words to wrap around Jesus. I could exhaust my mind and plumb the depths of my heart 
and never be able to say what needs to be said about him tonight. So I submit to you, Holy Spirit, take your word, ignite it in me, and help us explore this wonderful, wonderful Jesus, King of Kings. The Chosen is a, is a wonderful new video series being produced. It's the largest crowdfunded piece of video that's ever been made. And it's, it's wonderful to me to watch it because it gives you an idea of what it's like, maybe, to have been one of the disciples of Jesus. My favorite scene in the first series is in the seventh episode. Jesus has called Matthew, the tax collector, to be one of his disciples. And Peter doesn't think that's such a hot idea. So he's having an argument with Jesus and telling Jesus all the reasons why it wasn't a good idea to select Matthew. And Jesus says to him, you know, Peter, you weren't the most obvious choice when I picked you. Peter looked at him and said, but that was different. And Jesus looked back and said, get used to different. That message was one that these people who were throwing the parade for Jesus needed to get. They were, they were throwing what is in essence the first century ticker tape parade for Jesus. He had, he had raised Lazarus from the dead. And, you know, it's a big win for the home team. And now he's on a mule. He's obviously fulfilling scripture. And he's on his way into Jerusalem in what we have called the triumphal entry. It's interesting to me that Matthew says the entire city was stirred. Jerusalem was abuzz. There was this excitement across the city. It was, it was like a giant crowd buzz that was happening. Because in the minds of the people who were accompanying him in his parade, this was a king making a play to exert his power. And in fact, it, it kind of has this feeling when you read it, all four Gospels recorded, kind of has this feeling of like a spontaneous messianic joy that erupted. How many of you know Jesus never did, nor does he now do anything by accident? This was very much a planned event by Jesus. You see, you've got to remember that when Jesus picked this day, he picked it because of the significance of the day. And he comes into the city and he bookends the day, beginning and end, with two events. They're really two parts of the same event in which he rips back the veil of time and displays his kingdom to his followers in a way that he had not done throughout his life. He desperately wanted the people to see, especially his disciples, to see this kingdom to see the difference they were going to have to get used to. Here's, here's the backstory. At the very same time that Jesus is coming in one side of the city, there is another parade happening on the other side of the city. Spin back with me to the birth of Jesus. You remember Luke's record when he says, he says there were shepherds in the fields keeping watch over the flocks by night. You remember that part? Well, those shepherds were watching what are called the Paschal Lambs. 
These were the lambs that were brought into the city during Passover, and the families of Israel would go there to pick a lamb to take home as the centerpiece of the Seder. It was the beginning of the celebration of the Passover. Now think of this. If you could get a high view, you know, get up in a drone and look down, you can see a parade on this side of town coming in and another parade on this side of town coming around the tower at Migdor Adol and, 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 and into the city are the shepherds with these paschal sheep to celebrate the Passover where the blood was put on the doorposts and the lentils and the death angel passed over Israel's people. And at the very same moment, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, is coming in the other side of the city. And you know what struck me? That was the last time those lambs would ever be needed because the other one was coming into the city to settle the issue of sin and separation for, with God forever. So this wasn't an accident. Jesus comes into the city, and, and I know that that had to be underwriting the understanding of all those people that were around him in the parade. They remembered that. They knew what was going on. This was Messiah come to set up the kingdom for which they waited so very long. They, they, they were sure they had the picture of Messiah figured out. He was a military leader that was going to come in and throw off the yoke of Rome. To them, it was dream come true. And they were right. Sort of. Because he was coming in to usher God's dream, not theirs. God's dream was so much bigger. When I, when I read that scripture this week, I felt like the Lord spoke to my heart about it. How that we have this tendency to cast God and his purposes into a paradigm or mold that we can understand and comprehend so that we have control. We want a manageable God. That's what they thought they had. You know, God made man in his image in the garden, and we've been trying to return the favor ever since. There's this perpetual thing in us to create a construct, drop God into it, and make him fit. But you know, that's the seed of every disappointment we have with God. It's our paradigm forced on God. Disillusionment begins with what? An illusion. And those folks that were accompanying him in the parade had this serious, massive illusion about who Jesus was. That's the problem with ticker tape parades. They leave a really big mess. And that's what we're going to see in the coming week. Now, to be fair, Jesus did kind of incite the parade. He sent his disciples into town to commandeer transportation for him. And they brought back, as, as Matthew records it, a mother, a donkey, and her little colt. colt and, and, and they put their, their robes on him, and he sits on them, and they start riding. Here, here's the problem. You have this massive parade. People are shouting and talking about the highest heavens and Hosanna in the highest. And, and they seem to miss an obvious thing that would have told them that the kingdom they were seeing was very different than the kingdom they had in mind. You know what it was? The donkey. Yeah. No, not that one. Not that, that one. That one. Yeah. 
Jesus was coming riding humbly on a mule. He wasn't coming on a white stallion. He was coming accompanied by the songs of children, not the shouts of a valiant army. He was coming with his, his, robe, his road covered with, with the palm branches and overcoats, not, not, not princes and overlords. He was coming simply and humbly. And the people missed the point completely in the parade. But he reiterated the point later that day in the temple and nobody could miss the point. See, the triumphal entry and the cleansing of the temple are parts A and B of this event, this day. They, they are organically connected with each other. Because through it, Jesus was trying to display a message that his followers would desperately need every day for the rest of their lives. He was showing them something vital. He was showing them the way of his kingdom. It was as if he was saying, guys, you can't miss this because this is the way I do business. This entry was about a king and his kingdom. It was kingdom come. No matter how he was entering, the fact of the matter is this was a king and he was coming to clean house. But it was a king unlike they had ever seen before. Ushering in a kingdom they had never dreamed of. He came humbly, he came simply, he came gently, and he still changed everything. Jesus, in this act, this, this raucous entry and this riotous confrontation, the two ends of the day, he was living a parable before his his followers, and it was, it was the parable that explained his core message. He had said it in every setting. He had shown it over and over again to his disciples. It was his constant theme. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Close enough to touch. Impossible to ignore, and yet hidden from the eyes of those who couldn't get used to this. You know, as I dug into this over this past couple of weeks, I found what I consider to be maybe the core lessons, the, the fundamental values that Jesus was trying to teach, or four of them that I dug out. And, you know, it's interesting because as he comes into the city, he demonstrates these in a very real way but it, to be honest, they would not make any list of leadership traits that most of us would hear about in our culture today. And all the political wrangling and power-mongering of our day, what he does here wouldn't make sense. These values, though, are the heart and soul of who Jesus was. They, they literally undergird everything he did, everything he said, everything he left us. I think he wanted the disciples desperately to get it that day. It's like he was saying to them, if you want to know me, if you want to know what's really important to me, watch this. And he, he does it in a way that etches it on their hearts. He does it with epic impact, un 
unforgettable moments we still talk about today. As I saw this in my head, I, I think as Jesus was riding on that mule into the city, he was wearing the crown jewels of the King of Kings. The first one is humility. That's when you reach low, you stoop low, so you can reach high. In the narrative, he sends a couple of his disciples in to get these donkeys and bring them out. I love the way J.B. Phillips translates this. They brought the donkey and the colt and put their cloaks on them, and Jesus took his seat. You know, throughout the rest of the New Testament, you're always hearing about Jesus taking his seat at the right hand of the Father and from God. But he decided to demonstrate in a way we couldn't miss that to sit in the seat of influence in his kingdom, you first have to sit in the seat of humility. Before he could sit on a throne, he sat on a donkey. It was a crystal clear message to his disciples and to all those people that are around him that my kingdom is way different than the one that you're singing about that you think is coming. It's interesting, biblical times, when a king came into a city, the way he came in demonstrated why he was coming. They only came in two ways. If they came on a horse, they came for war. If they came on a donkey, they came for peace. Jesus came on a donkey to demonstrate that the way of the kingdom is really different than the way you get things done in the world. In fact, I really believe that for Jesus, this was a, do you trust me enough to do it my way moment? Will you revert to the way that the world does kingdom, or will you do it my way? Gentle, riding on a donkey. This is the first principle that I got. We're called to carry his authority into the earth. But to have his authority, we have to fully embrace a king who stoops low. A king who reaches down to the least. The seat of honor in the kingdom of God is the seat of humility. The second thing I saw was the word identity. Seeing your face, yourself in his face. As the picture played out, you got to picture this in your head. It starts as this little gathering, and then as they move along, as they come along, the crowd grows and the crowd grows, and they're singing, Hosanna, Hosanna the highest, Hosanna the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There's this raucous noise as they sing prophecy over Jesus as they're coming into the city. And as they do that, the crowd grows. It gets bigger and bigger and bigger. In fact, the Passion translates, Translation says this, An exceptionally large crowd gathered and carpeted the road before him with their cloaks and prayer shawls. You get that sense, that prophetic sense that was happening there. And it's really interesting. As he rode in the middle of that crowd, it said there were people behind him and before him and all around him, and they were all singing and shouting and declaring the kingdom. What they cried was the word, Hosanna! 
We sing it all the time. But you know, it, it's like two sides of a coin. Hosanna is both a cry of desperation and a call of declaration. Here's what Hosanna means. God, save us. And it also means God saves us. See it? It's intercession and declaration. All of this is happening around him. And as this cry of hope for the future happens, a question begins to emerge all around him throughout the city. There is this whispered question. Who is this? A couple of things occurred to me. One is, they knew that the man on the mule defined them. They had to know who he was in order to know who they were. But you know the other thing that struck me? I wonder, does our praise ever make anybody wonder who Jesus is? Do we worship in such a way that when people walk in, they say, who are they singing about? Who are they raising their hands to? Who is this that would cause people to have that kind of heart, that kind of celebration? Who is this? See, they knew that who they defined him to be determined who they were. If they could see him as king, what did that make them? citizens of his kingdom. But here's the problem. They had this construct of Messiah, and the man on the mule didn't fit that construct. So you know what their answer was to the question? Oh, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. He's a minor prophet from a no-name city. They couldn't see Jesus for all that he was. They missed Messiah because of the mule. He was riding on. And I wonder if our preconceived notions about him limit who he can be for us. Because who he is defines who I am. If he's king, I'm a citizen of the kingdom. If he's Lord, I'm under his reign. If he's healer, I'm the one he heals. If he's deliverer, I'm the one he rescues. Who he is determines who I am. My identity is wrapped up in how I define him. Our view of what is real rises from how we see Jesus. Here's that second principle. You can't see Jesus for who he can be in your life if you only let him be who he has been in your life. In other words, you can't have everything Jesus is in the future if you're stuck with only who he's been in your past. Every day of my life, Jesus gets bigger. You know what Isaiah said? That when Messiah came, of the increase of his government and peace, there would be no end. Did you know that when God said in the very beginning, let there be light, he never said stop? So what's happening? Light is constantly expanding and growing in the universe because he never said stop. He just said, let there be light. And as I think about that, Jesus is the same way. He's more than I'll ever understand. 
He's more than I can grasp. He's more than I can get hold of. He's more than I thought he was. He's more than I dreamed he was. He's everything and more. Paul prayed that we would know the breadth and length and depth and height of God's love, which is beyond knowing. But they boxed him in, and he could only be the prophet from Nazareth for them. Your identity comes from who you allow him to be in your life. Third thing I saw, and this is where we move into the second part of this epic day when he goes into the temple. This is the third of the crown jewels, mercy, living from the Father's heart. Upon entering Jerusalem, the scripture says, Jesus went directly into the temple area and he drove out the merchants who were buying and selling their goods. He overturned their tables of money changers and the stands of those selling doves. And he said to them, my dwelling place will be known as a house of prayer, but you've made it a hangout for thieves. Nothing got under Jesus' skin as much or in the same way as somebody putting something between a hurting heart and the heart of his father. It sent him into an eternal fit. You know, he began his ministry and he concluded his ministry with a riot in the temple. Same message, same action. And I thought about it, I thought, you know, God wanted to make it easy for people to get to him. But the religionists wanted to make it hard. So they... They came up with, they installed cow stalls and they instituted taxes and they hiked up prices and they created a screening process that not even the most faithful wanted to go through to get near God. And it sent Jesus off. Setting his feet into that day, he set in motion the climax that would end his life. He overturned the tables. He started a stampede of the animals. He kicked it. He even took time to braid a whip. I mean, he was ready when he got there. And everything went flying. Everything that had the scent of religion was destroyed and decimated. While the expression was anger, the ethos was mercy. Why? Because Jesus has a heart for broken people and he has heartburn with anybody that gets in the way of a broken person coming to the good heart of the Father. And I love this. He goes through this thing and just literally makes space in the house of God. And you know what it says? Then the blind and the crippled came into the temple and he healed them all. After religion got removed, people who needed the healer got to meet him. The lame and the blind were brought in. Here's the principle, guys. God is vehemently opposed to anything or anyone who gets between them and one of his people one of the people that he loves, no matter how ridiculously bad their life is. If it's there, it's got to go because he wants their hearts. It, mercy literally is the heartbeat of the Father. 
Here's the last one. Simplicity. That's walking with eternity in mind. I, I love what happens. Jesus clears out all the religious junk, and all of the lame and the blind come in, and he's healing them. And you know who follows the lame and the blind in? The children. Pastor Ann, the children came to church. They came to see Jesus. And when they saw him healing blinded eyes and getting men to walk, the only logical response in the child's mind was, we got to sing to him. And they start singing and shouting and dancing. Because that's the only thing that makes sense. I love it. Here's the response of the religionists. It's mind-boggling. When the chief, listen carefully, when the chief priests and religious scholars heard the children shouting and saw all the wonderful miracles of healing, they were furious. That is the insanity of religion. Jesus is doing miracles, so much so that the children are dancing and singing. It is literal pandemonium in the temple. And it made the religious mad. I love Jesus' response. Jesus was a lot cooler than you guys give him credit for. He looks at the religious and he says, yeah, I hear them. Because they said, do you hear them singing? Do you hear what they're singing? Jesus goes, yeah, I hear them. And I love his question. Have you not read the scripture? You get it? These are the scripture pros. These are the guys that can tell you a chapter and verse for everything they do in their life. And he looks at them and goes, have you guys not read the Bible? I, I get that same way when I hear church people and they see somebody who gets a little too excited. They're too exuberant. They don't know their backstory, but they're just, you know, they're just, they just love Jesus. And they go, you know, God doesn't make people act like that. He doesn't make them do silly things. And my response is, have you read the Bible? Look at some of the stuff he did. Look at some of the stuff he did. He made Isaiah wear underwear for three and a half years, buried in the ground, leave it there for a while till it was good and rank, and then put it on and wear it again. And you know what Jesus says? Jesus says, the only people in this temple who understand the kingdom are these little children that are singing. They get it. They see it. They understand it. That's why he took a little child and set him in front of his disciples and said, Hey, fellas, you want to see the kingdom? you got to get like them. You have to have the heart of a little child, the eyes of a little child. You know, those children, they didn't have all the trappings of religious propriety. They didn't know you were supposed to act like that in church. God, I wish some of us had learned that. Sorry. I mean, it's true. They didn't think you should act like that in church. Those children didn't know that. They didn't know you weren't supposed to sing and shout and clap your hands and dance around because Jesus was so good. And it's interesting. When Jesus looked at those children, I believe with all of my heart 
He smiled a smile of hope because he knew my kingdom is going to go on because they get it. Why does Pastor Ann do all this ridiculous stuff for these children? Dressing up like a cowgirl. Why? Because the kingdom of God belongs to such as them. The only ones in the temple that got it were the little ones, dancing around like maniacs. You see, Jesus came to simplify the way to God. Religionists came to make it complex and make it hard. Did you know how the, the, the Old Testament prophesies it? It said that he would take the mountains and bring them down, take the valleys and lift them up, and make a highway that's so clear that a fool and a wayfaring man could not lose his way in it. That's what Jesus came to do. Here's the principle. Destiny hides in plain sight. Right amidst the ordinary stuff of everyday living, but it takes the eyes of a child to see it. All right, let me try this out. You look like you're in shock, so I better quit. Luke records this interesting little part at the end. He says, he says that when the, these religionists saw this happening, they said to Jesus, teacher, you need to rebuke your followers. And Jesus said, it wouldn't do any good. Because if I did, and I silenced them, the stones would cry. Where he said this, I got a little map. I copied Pastor Jeff. I got a map. Um, as he's coming over the hill called on the Mount of Olives, and he's coming down into the Kidron Valley, he would have seen all kinds of stones. He would have seen all the stones along the way on the road. And he would have looked up and seen the massive stones that made the wall of Jerusalem. Had he looked a little higher, he'd see the beautiful golden stones of the temple. He had a whole lot of stones to look at. And he said, if I silence these that get the kingdom, all of creation will cry. It's a powerful word. It's, you know, I actually have some songs in the past about, you know, if, the, if, the, if I don't praise, then the rocks will praise. That's not what he said. The word cry out, the stones will cry out. It's the same word that's used of Jesus on the cross when he cried out and gave up the ghost. It's this agonizing cry from the depths of the being. And he said, if you don't get the kingdom, if you don't sing its song, if you don't live its plan, all of creation will groan because creation knows kingdom. It's interesting. I think I think that Jesus might have been might have been quoting Habakkuk when Habakkuk said this. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You've devised shame for your house by cutting off many people. You have forfeited your life for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Jesus said, look, guys, I can't shut up people that get the kingdom because if I do, creation will lose it. This isn't about creation praising. It's about creation weeping. Weeping, why? Because we don't understand the kingdom. 
what Paul wrote in Romans 8. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth till now. When will stones cry? Stones will cry when we embrace and experience a reality that is less than the one that Jesus taught us to pray for. Kingdom of God come. Will of God be done on earth as it is in heaven. I don't know about you, but ain't no rock going to cry out in my place. Pray with me. O King of Kings, great Lord of the universe, Lord of heaven and earth, Jesus, Son of God, Messiah, we cry out to you, Hosanna. We still need you. We still need you to show us who we are. Lord, we have delved into this because we want to know what's important to you. Lord, teach us how the kingdom works. Help us to walk in the way of the kingdom, not, not the way of the world around us. Not using the methods of, of what we see all around us, but gentle, simple, humble, merciful, world-changing kingdom. Jesus, you are the center of the universe and you are the center of our lives and you are the center of your church. And tonight, we lift you up and we declare you are Lord. You reign above it all. You reign over it all. And we ask you, Jesus, 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 be the center of my life. Jesus, be the center of my life. From beginning to the end, it will always be. It's always been you, Jesus. Jesus, sing it with me. Jesus, be the center of my life. Jesus, be the center of my life. From beginning to the end, it always will. It always has been you, Jesus.